0: Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and lately, for whatever reason, I've been spending lots of time with vegans, lots of time with lots of vegans, to the point that I realized I couldn't have just one vegan episode. So today's episode of Chef Demony is going to be Vegan 1.0, with more to follow. Let's get started.
1: Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan.
0: It seems that there's a lot to say on the subject of veganism, and today I've got two great interviews, so I'm going to try to get right to them and be a little more brief in my opening remarks. The first interview is with Karen McCarthy, and Karen is a vegan chef in Vancouver, and she runs two really interesting businesses. One is called Blue Heron Creamery, and the other is Soil Restaurant, and they're located side-by-side on Vancouver's Main Street in the Mount Pleasant area. I first met Karen recently at the annual general meeting of a charity that I've done some work with called Growing Chefs, and Growing Chefs sends volunteer chefs into elementary classes to teach kids about growing and cooking their own food, and Karen very kindly came to the meeting and she put on a cheese tasting for us of a wide selection of wonderful Blue Heron vegan cheeses. They really were exceptional. Unlike any other plant-based cheeses I've tried, they were complex and super tasty and different and interesting. Interesting. So I knew from that experience that I wanted to talk to Karen and then even more so after learning that she had been involved in situation, I guess we'll call it, that both she and I have taken to calling Cheesegate. And I'll put in the show notes a link to an article in the Globe and Mail, a national newspaper in Canada. And it describes this situation, which was basically, a, will call it a concern, of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. And they had received a complaint and that caused them to follow up with Blue Heron Creamery in Vancouver. And Blue Heron, Karen's company, produces plant-based cheeses. As you'll hear in the interview, this all centers around the definition of cheese. So what is cheese? How should we define it? How do we define it? As you'll hear, the CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, they deal with a definition that refers very precisely to the lacteal secretions of mammary glands, of certain ruminants. So that definition is based on a thing, something that cheese has to be made out of. And then you'll hear that Karen thinks a more useful definition could be based around process, and that would be the application of microbes to a medium that produces something that we know as cheese. And that medium could be dairy-based, could be milk— or it could be plant-based, so that could be something like cashews, it could be something else. And in talking to Karen, I learned that blue heron actually uses a variety of mediums in the production of their vegan cheeses. So they use nuts, they use legumes, and they're using something that I found appealed to the Scottish side of my heritage, which is groats or whole oats. So you'll hear all about that food production in my interview with Karen. She's also got a book out on the topic, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then after my interview with Karen, I'm going to speak with Glenford Jameson, the lawyer in Toronto whose practice focuses on the food sector. And Glenford represents everybody from producers to importers of food products, and he deals with everything from corporate commercial matters to intellectual property matters to dealing with regulatory bodies. Anyway, that discussion with Glenford is coming up soon. But first, please join me on Vancouver's Main Street for my talk with Chef Karen McAfee. Karen, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for being on the show.
2: No worries. Uh, my, my pleasure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's start with you know the why of vegan cheese making. And I realize I, I might be being a little controversial there even by using that term because I understand, and we'll get into this a little later, that there is a little controversy around, around the term. But before we get there, tell me, tell the listeners, why vegan cheese?
2: That is not as obvious an answer as it might seem. I am vegan myself. And I've been vegetarian since I was 12, and I'm actually allergic to dairy. But making vegan cheese was not some sort of path that I was seeking to get onto. I had no desires, like there was no intended goal initially around that. I'm a chef by trade, and I was the executive chef at a vegan restaurant called Graze. And I wanted to offer a sharing board to my guests that sort of in the lines of a charcuterie. But I didn't like the vegan cheese alternatives that were on the market at the time.
0: And that's not that long ago, is it? No, yeah. 2013. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> so I didn't I didn't think that the ones that were on the market deserved a place on our charcuterie board when I was doing my own fermentation and my own pickling and my own smoking and those kinds of things. So what I was finding on the market, I didn't feel like I had a place to sit there. So I started doing research on different recipes online, and I didn't like those very much either. And I still find this to be true that many, many recipes written online are written without an idea or an understanding of how the materials work. So if something were to go wrong for the person executing it, because the recipes lack an understanding of why, how the materials behave together, it means it's very hard to troubleshoot without an explanation for what's going on. So, I didn't love the outcome of most of those methods I was encountering. So, I began studying dairy cheese making methods. Right. And that's how vegan cheese. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's that's literally how I arrived at it because my, my initial iterations of what's evolved into Blue Heron began at Grey's.
0: Right, right.
2: And... That idea
0: of uh, recipes not getting into what's behind a concept, I think of things that are appear deceptively simple. So one thing I love to make is sourdough bread and you know it's three ingredients. It's flour, water, salt and then the starter that's that's cultured the yeast. But what I find is that it's one of these things that comes down to experience and repetition and feel and experimentation, right? What works well on one day will work differently in a, on a more humid day in a different environment, whether I've let it sit out for an extra hour, something like that. So, is that sort of what you mean by by the the information is is lacking, or was it simply here are the ingredients, but they don't talk about the chemical process? Yeah, I'm more yeah.
2: scientific. Yeah, okay, fair. Enough. <laughs> I'm I'm more scientifically inclined. So, I mean, the science and the art work together, and you still you still, I mean, scientifically is a, inherently it's empirical. So, it, by repetition, which is a form is empirical work that's how you develop the observational awareness of how things are changing. Maybe not the why, if you're making sourdough bread a hundred times, you still may not know why those things are working. You just know that they're working. For me, it was more than just the repetition part. As a chef, you repeat, 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 repeat all the time. It was me, for me, it was what I was finding in the online recipes is that there was no explanation of why certain ingredients were chosen And what their properties are that would make them advantageous and therefore what did they do together that made that thing and so with dairy methodology there is that explanation it's not a one-to-one translation to what I'm now doing with vegan cheese but there was something for me to look at and go okay this is a set of variables that can be examined I can understand what the variables are. Can I change a variable and see what outcome is? Okay, microbes are involved. So microbes are living organisms. They require certain things. What are those certain conditions, and how can I change them to make them do their jobs?
0: In a, in a completely different medium. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: Yeah. And then will all of them behave the same way? And and so it's it's an ongoing, pro like, there's no end of the learning. Uh, how could there be in dairy cheesemaking? There's over a 1,000 varieties of cheese. So, this you know, this is just the beginning of things for vegan cheese making. But that was it for me in terms of recipes and how they're written. And I, it's that I think it matters that you know something about why your materials do certain things.
0: Sure, sure. Well, and let's let's talk a, a little bit more in depth about dairy cheese and vegan cheese and the definitions. Because I think I understand from from a talk I heard you give earlier a different take on how cheese might be defined. Mm -hmm. And I think the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, I I didn't write down the exact definition, but their definition is definitely anchored in the word dairy, right? It requires it as a component of the finished product. Mm -hmm. And I think, but please tell me, I think your definition for cheese would be built more around process. Is that right?
2: That is correct. So... For certain, the, the, I mean, it, there's a couple of things I want to talk about on, on this point. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency is the regulatory arm essentially of Health Canada who creates regulation around, uh, via the Food and Drug Act with regard to these things. The CFIA is really the enforcement arm of all of that. They do not create new regulation. They enforce what currently exists and interpret it as... as has. <laughs> Sort of been the wild ride of the last month and (laughs) and a half. Last month
0: or so, yes. (laughs)
2: Um, So because of their role as an enforcement arm of regulations pertaining to specific elements of industries, there's a large part in which it is true that the current definitions regarding cheese... Are defined by the dairy industry because the CFIA doesn't sit there and create. Oh, look, vegan hamburger. We're going to create the regulation for vegan. Re-. That's not, not. That's not how it's done. So, the, it is true that it's currently anchored in that, and that the standards of identity for each type of dairy cheese also have a really long list of requirements down to percentage of fat, certain kind, a certain amount of humidity, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in order to qualify to meet those standards. So it it is true that they have come to define cheese based on uh, the uh, milk as being part of that commonly understood thing. But that is open to interpretation, maybe not through the CFIA, but certainly through an appeal to Health Canada on some level. And so in my book, The Art of Plant-Based Cheese Making, I anticipate this issue. I, I wrote the book I started writing the book in about 2014, 2015, and published it with New Society Publishers in 2017, but I addressed the issue of definition there, because one of the things that's bothered me in vegan cheese making is that there's, well, not bothered me, it's just normal for a new thing, but it's such a new field. We don't have any ubiquitous standards. We don't have any ubiquitous methods. You can't get 10 of us in the room and say, this is a style of cheese. Let's talk about this style of cheese. That doesn't exist right now. So in my book, in its infantile attempt, I was trying to sort of make sense of this realm of things all falling into this category. And so I made loose definitional boundaries between cheese of the Z pertaining to things that are made that don't involve culturing. And cheese with an S that would pertain to those things that are cultured. And that is in that second definition is where I used, I relied on the UN Codex Elementarius, which is the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, their standards for identifying things. And I looked at their definition of cheese. And even though it says dairy in it, it actually states a list as a process. And so that's when I was like, but this is a process. This is, sure, you're, like, you're saying this because that's how it's been done for this long. But really, it's a process you're referring to about the changing of protein via digestive enzymes or microbes. And then the application of a bunch of other things that result in this thing. Right. And that's why I want to rely on process. <laughs> right.
0: Right. Well, and that makes sense because as I understand the genesis of cheese, of dairy cheese, it was really a... Uh, a method of preserving milk, right? At some point. Yeah, it was to, an accident. <laughs> to, right. It's just sort of like somebody let the uh, let the grape juice sit in the sit Pretty in the much, and long. then they found out it
2: didn't make them sick, right. and they and could it, still eat it.
0: Right, right, and it would last for a lot longer, mm-hmm. and in some cases, it tasted super delicious. Exactly. Right, so the vegan cheese making is really taking the same principles, processes, and, and I'm guessing, and I'm, I, I really want you to give more information on this, some of the same components, the microbes, bacteria, mold, But just applying them to different, what would you call, I'm using the word medium, would you call it a sort, like the the nuts or the legumes? I I say medium. When I
2: teach my classes, I refer to it as a medium. It's a medium that they feed on. My personal approach, I can't speak for other vegan cheesemakers. I can only speak for what I'm doing. But my approach has been to primarily think about the work I do in creating what we do in terms of the microbes first understanding the microbes and what they want to do and how they will work with this new medium, and then finding microbes that haven't been freeze-dried on dairy mediums and and working with them to do the work. So microbes in cheesemaking, for the cheeses that do use it, microbes create acidity through metabol- so they metabolize the proteins and fats and sugars and that creates acidity and that acidity denatures the protein and then creates curd or changes the shape of the milk in dairy and in, in my case it would be one of the nutter seed mediums. And so that's the purpose microbes play and the reason acidity like adding acid alone doesn't do that there, there's something through that digestive process in their release there's also other enzymes involved and things like that that are doing different things in there versus just applying lemon juice to something
0: right or right.
2: citric acid alone
0: okay yeah. and can you give us a couple of examples maybe pick a style or two that you yeah. really like and and talk about what the medium is I know from having sampled some yeah. of your cheeses recently nuts are there legumes are there and then I saw something recently I guess on maybe on Instagram you were talking about groats. Is that right? Yes.
2: Yeah. yeah. I've been actually working with groats for a couple of years, or oats. It was just that I realized that two years ago, the we had some success, inconsistent success, albeit with them, but I was using the wrong format of oat. And so now we're working with some oat groats, so the unrefined, unbent, unchopped up groat itself, and we're it looks very promising for us to have a... a A return to that success. I'm currently doing an R&D project with a company in the Netherlands um, examining the uses of lupini legume. So the recipes initially that I'd been asked to sort of look at were sort of more the conventional vegan cheese ones I suppose the non-cultured ones but we're doing cultured ones there and we've been having good success with that. Like surprisingly we just had to do a little bit more work around establishing a protocol for working with the legume but it's showing a lot of promise for making hard cheeses. Right. And so we're very excited about that.
0: Can you talk a bit about what's happening now among vegan cheesemakers in the, I'm not even sure what industry, it would yeah. is an industry, but also a craft. And I know you've got, you mentioned the Netherlands, and I know you've got connections sort of throughout the industry. And maybe talk a little bit about... What's happening there? And is there a movement toward either standardization or coming up with style guides?
2: Or? Well, I think, I think that's a great question. I think that we need to get there. I think I've been having some conversations with a couple of fellow other commercial vegan cheese makers around that very thing, around us forming some level of professional organization where we can start developing a framework to better engage regulatory authorities because ultimately we're going to have to do this anyway. So I'd rather our sector take the reins and be part of that planning, that development of knowledge. The challenge is always, in a new sector like that, there's always going to be around intellectual property concerns and nervousness. But I think we're there, and I think it'll start with a couple of us. and, And so... We're already having conversations around what that might look like. I talked to a number of vegan cheesemakers in Europe as well. It hasn't gotten off the ground yet, but I've been working on putting together a collective research project called Project Pangea, whereby a number of us in different areas, different countries, work on a common project that doesn't use any of our intellectual property. So that means we can sort of collectively share our knowledge and information in a different way without fear of giving up specific things or specific styles. But I do think I, and that my hope out of that is that we actually evolve. Hey, we can say, that is a style of cheese that, yeah, let's share this information with other vegan cheesemakers and they can put their twist on it.
0: Right, just just as you have an accepted style for, I, assuming an accepted guideline style for camembert, yeah. for cheddar.
2: exactly. Like a camembert, for instance, there's several, there's three molds that are generally used in it, but there's different versions of one of them, the geotrichum. Some makers might like a particular flavor that geotrich13 produces produces for instance but others might like geotrick 17 instead better and they might use them in slightly different ratios with and camembertty than the other cheesemaker does and they'll behave differently on a certain so uh, yeah that's the goal is essentially that is to start hoping to start developing a couple of styles that can be shared amongst vegan cheesemakers more broadly i think some of this will be an organic evolution it's bound to happen some things like to behave a certain way over time and I think that'll just sort of become an evolution right of its own but
0: but do you see a need I think you do for um an industry group whatever yes. it's going to be to respond to and maybe we can get into this topic a little yeah. deeper okay. now the the yeah. CFIA and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to the yeah. Globe and Mail article for example <laughs> and, and the, the, we call it
2: Cheesegate. Cheesegate, cheese <laughs> I love it
0: and the, the Coles notes there being concern—can we call it concern—from the yeah. CFIA about the use of the word cheese?
2: It wasn't even concern on the. So I wanna, yeah. So yes, I 100% think now is the time. The time is ripe right for our sector to start saying, "Okay, what what is it we're doing? What are the boundaries between something like dia, which is not cultured and not using microbes the way we do?" So I do think it's time. It's time for us as a sector in the industry to start saying. Okay, we've got to start sending some loose standards now. We have to be more proactive in terms of dealing with regulatory authorities. And I think that's one way to start getting us there in that respect. With respect to the CFIA, even though this whole thing, even though <laughs> you know, Cheesecake exploded and my life went into like a crazy vortex for about three weeks, at no point have they been actually acrimonious to deal with or did it, certainly opaque, as I think a lot of bureaucratic structures are. But there's been no... I mean, that is their job as it currently stands to enforce the rules that they have set.
0: <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but it's, I, I think this is a component of it as an individual small business operator yeah. that's that's a big thing could be a big thing to have to deal with and yes. I, and i imagine that part of the um, attraction to having an industry group coalition whatever it is is a unified voice and, and resources to, to speak to that issue
2: yes and that and i and i stand by the, the yeah we 100% need to do that i just i'm very clear about that distinction i i don't i just don't want to be casting labels that aren't are helpful in terms of engaging a regulatory authority <laughs> <Sure> enough, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's that I also have a capacity to understand their own limitations and, and jurisdiction with respect to how far they can uh, like spread or pull the rules certainly when CFIA Ottawa came back saying we've reviewed your case this is what, how you can use this language, which, yes, was actually the language I had asked to use in many earlier emails prior to CheeseGate. So this is the part I ref- when I say opaque, yes. Um, I do think if the industry itself starts to agree on a certain set of things, then it will be a lot more difficult for us to be dealt with one-on-one as it currently exists. It's sort of regulatory whack-a-mole right now. So if we do get organized and start even finding some beginning agreements around some standards, I think that'll make it much easier to engage Health Canada And the CFI on the need for changes to regulations.
0: Let's talk about a few of the cheeses from not so much the process point of view, but from what your customers are. I want to ask you for a few favorites, and they can be either your favorites or your customers' favorites. What? uh, Tell us about that.
2: Um, Some of our guest favorites are our mustarda cheddar. That's definitely one of them. I when we put it out, I release it. Not every week because of its aging time, but when we release it, it's gone very, very quickly. Our cormorant is another one that's become very popular, and I'm very glad of that because it's actually a more complex cheese that does involve both a lactic acid culturing phase and a mold inoculation phase. So I'm really glad because it's not necessarily... easiest one right away right Um, and
0: not the easiest do you mean approachable from a consumer
2: i think maybe i think when they it's because the the mold inoculation mold will grow on it and it's normal part of what happens with that particular cheese but we have we live in north america and north america has become very sanitized Mm -hmm. (laughs) about our understandings around a lot of different things around food And so I think visually, for people, that can be a bit challenging. But I mean, if you were to look at any seriously aged dairy cheese and its original rind before it gets to a cheese shop,
0: Right. You're going to see some mold. Well, all those dusty, gray,
2: white, tan patterns that you see on some of the... That's actually just that's the, the vestiges of the mold being washed off. Right. That's right. all that is. Yeah. If you'd seen it growing, it would look very different.
0: Karen, let's talk a little bit about where we're seated right now. Soil. Oh, yeah. Soil Restaurant, which is beautiful. This is my first thank time in oh, here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. No,
2: it's gorgeous. For me, the soil is a bit of coming back to my real roots, like my where my part resides, which is in cooking. I mean, it's tattooed on me. And there, literally, yeah, there it I, is. I, a year, two years ago, I got that done. Soil's so actually been a very long-term a thought for me. This is what I see as just its first iteration. Ultimately, I want it to be an alternative method cooking school focusing just on land-based, plant-based cooking, teaching people, the students about growing, the whole cycle of growing food and taking care of food and preserving it. But so some, this is there's some elements of that here our focus is very strongly on reducing food waste so finding ways to close food waste gaps trying to be I don't want to say conscious I kind of dislike that word a lot but we're trying to be mindful in what we're choosing to elevate or highlight on the menu and where it comes from I I mean a good number of restaurants do but we are working creatively around the food waste gap problem so we waste per week in terms of food waste that can't be converted into something probably less than 20 pounds.
0: Wow, and for a restaurant, oh, that's, that's amazing. a hard thing to
2: do. <laughs> of so we focus, and that means we focus on methodology, like fermentation, dehydration, different forms of preservation, di- different uses of materials. So how do we fully use the product? The so instead of throwing out kale stems, we pickle them and then use those to make a kale parchment and things like that. So
0: right, wow, and how are you finding that? Going back to a discussion we had just before we started recording yeah. about. I was telling you a story about my friend Andrea, yeah. who I sometimes worry makes things very hard on herself <laughs> because she takes because she yeah. takes the high road, right? Yeah. She does yeah. she does things well, and um, new friends at Lone Wolf Bakery and Seashelt, they do the same thing, and from what I've learned speaking to you, you absolutely do the same <laughs> thing, same thing here, which is wonderful to see as a consumer, as somebody who can come in and enjoy it. It's wonderful to see how is it on you, your staff, the business. It's it's a hard thing to do.
2: It is a hard thing to do. I think we've been successful in the sense of what we've been able to do at soils that when you're focused on method heavy stuff you can make that really complicated or not and sometimes it's inherently complicated but it hasn't proven to be so so labor intensive because we we choose very carefully how many complicated methods we're going to involve in a dish? So it's not it's, we're not just trying to stuff a dish full of method. Like, right, right, right. That method can be a lot of different things. Simply just understanding. How to cook a certain kind of potato the right way. So, education has been a big part of what I've wanted soil to be about, which is know your materials, understand them, like understand how starch changes over time, understand that not all potatoes behave the same way or are great for the same purposes.
0: Right, and f- and for you, it sounds like education and and sharing sharing knowledge yeah. with as wide a group of people is important to you.
2: Yeah, right. I think I think so. Yeah, increasingly that's become. A focus and maybe that's been a born of my my own pathway into becoming a chef wasn't straightforward and it wasn't the story I want that story where I said I worked with those big name chefs that wasn't my story it was more the okay you're the resident vegetarian you make the vegetarian thing because we can't be bothered to do it sort of approach so I just happen to be very immersive and want to learn so I will if somebody doesn't want to teach I will go and find a way to figure something out so I think for me, I've wanted a very different experience for the cooks that come and work here right. with us, is I want a very different experience than that. I want them to know. I want them to learn things and share what they know. And even at Graze, that it was challenged up there sometimes, but that was still the goal. I really think if somebody learns the principles behind something, they will. that information will last longer and they can do more with it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and last question that I have is... For listeners who want to learn more about the areas that you're interested in, where would you point them? Your book, of course, (laughs) and I'll put a link to that, on making plant-based cheeses. But what are some resources, either online or places you like in Vancouver, where where would you send people who are interested in learning more about veganism, plant-based cheeses?
2: Well, uh, veganism in general, more broadly, as there is another woman named Bridget Burns who runs a thing called the vegan project she's also one of the founding partners behind the upcoming vegan festival but she often posts a lot of they and has articles and content that's very helpful for people just wanting to learn more Uh, zoe pellet hosts the vancouver vegan resource center i think that's a bi-monthly pop-up that happens at little mountain pop-up shop but that's also a learning opportunity. In terms of skills, I mean, we teach workshops here at Soil on Monday, Tuesdays. We haven't posted our new workshop schedule yet, but we're gonna be teaching things like ve- creating umami and vegan cooking and and things, and how to use all the vegetable, how to be creative with preserves. There's a great culinary set of programs. Not They're not very vegan deep, but there's, well, my course is one of them, but at the Italian Cultural Center, and there's a fermentation workshop there by my friend Brad from Biota Fermentation as well. So that's a great place to just start learning some good skill set stuff. And Cook Culture has uh, some of their in their courses. Um, they periodically have some plant-based and vegan-oriented ones. I've taught one or two of those. But they periodically have that kind of content. And, uh, well, I'll be teaching at Gourmet Warehouse soon too. Um, but they are looking to start doing a bit more plant-based stuff. For the people that are more professionally minded, the only one of the schools that's actually developing real content along those lines right now is the Northwest Academy. Just, just up the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but skills-wise, that's still more the challenge of getting that deeper knowledge. Right, yeah. and, when,
0: and when you say skills-wise, it's diving deep into yeah, fermentation, I mean, into I mean, preservation. Yeah, yeah. I,
2: mean, I mean, even understanding what dehydration can do beyond the stuff that's taught in the raw courses. and not with the limitations of like this is only raw. Like using dehydrated elements in a cooked dish can be really exciting. And the diving deeper, I mean, you can take a class that's geared towards the I guess the French method trained person and they will go, oh yes, vegetable. But I mean really looking at a vegetable and what it can do. You can make a roux out of a potato without ever using refined potato starch. You can do a bunch of different things with these. You can take yam skin and dehydrate, roasted yam skin and dehydrate it turn it into a powder and then use that as a thickening agent as well as a flavoring agent in your food so it's doing those things
0: right and that to my mind comes back to your scientific approach yeah, it's yeah. really it's really breaking down your source materials into the their component parts and then and then learning about the processes you can apply it to them
2: yeah that's yeah. I mean that's my that's my nature is that's what I, I want to take it apart see it and then put it back together and then understand then you understand the whole thing but you don't always have to tear everything apart right that. right okay i <laughs> <That's> sounding very <laughs> destructive <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>
0: like, <laughs> let's, let's say examine it
2: yeah okay. yeah yeah, yeah. yes <laughs> Derby,
0: well listen karen thank you so much for appearing on the show it's been wonderful to talk to you
2: thank you so much for having me it was nice to meet you
0: I really enjoyed sitting down with Karen at Soil Restaurant on Main Street. It's a beautiful room and I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion. It's clear that Karen is passionate both as a chef about the food that she produces, but also about education. It's really important to Karen that she teach the cooks that work in her restaurant and even the wider public through the courses that she offers. So I'll put a link to her book and I'll put a link to some of the other resources that Karen mentioned. And I encourage you to check them out. And if you have a chance, sign up for one of Karen's courses. I know you're going to learn a lot. And now to interview number two. This is with Glenford Jamieson, and he is the lawyer in Toronto who focuses on the food sector. So I found this discussion really interesting because, of course, I'm a lawyer and I'm interested in the food business. And in speaking to Glenford, I realized I was a bit naive. I didn't realize just the depth Of the practice that one could have in the food sector. So Glenford deals with everything from straight up corporate commercial issues to those intellectual property matters to regulatory issues and then we talked about some of the different challenges he's dealt with. One for example is trying to figure out what is a novel food because there are certain requirements when you're bringing a novel food to market. So how is a novel food defined? What is a novel food? Are crickets a novel food? Glenford and I have a good chat about that. We also talk about something that I've noticed over time, and that is the similarities between the two careers I know, between the culinary field and the legal field. And at first blush, it might not sound that there are a lot of similarities but I at least have noticed many of them over time and I really appreciated speaking with Glenford on this topic to get his take as well because he's done some time in restaurant kitchens too and he had noted some similarities as well. So we spoke both about some of the great similarities and about some of the darker ones. Both careers, for example, have higher than usual averages for addictions issues and both careers, both industries are grappling with how best to deal with that. Mental health health is another issue. And again, both careers are dealing with that or starting to deal with that more and more. And then we talked about some of the positive similarities between the roles too. So join me for this interview. It all took place within Ontario. I was in my hometown of Thunder Bay over the Easter long weekend. And I spoke remotely to Glenford who is in Toronto. And we had a great chat about food and law and cooking. And here it is. Join me and Glenford Jameson. Well, here we are, at least within the same province. I'm uh, sitting in my hometown of Thunder Bay today and really happy to be speaking with Glenford Jameson, another lawyer. And he's got a focus on an area that, of course, I'm really interested in food law. So I'm really excited to speak to you about that. Uh, Glenford, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for appearing as a guest on Chef
3: It's my absolute pleasure. I think what you're doing is really exciting and I'm thrilled to be a part of it.
0: Let's jump into what I've taken to calling CheeseGate because I first saw your name associated with an article in the Globe and Mail that came out a little earlier this year. And it was focused around Blue Heron, which is a vegan cheese producer, as you know, in Vancouver. And they had run into, I I guess I'll call it an issue and ask for your take on it with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, about the use of um, simply about the use of the word cheese. So, can you tell us what that issue was and, and your take on it?
3: Yeah, for sure. Is it, it was a really great article. It was fun working with Alexandra Gill, who sure. I understand uh, her nickname is the Guillotine in Vancouver for the West Coast <laughs> listeners <laughs> for their, their restaurant <laughs> the restaurant review. The restaurant reviewer for the Globe and Mail. She was writing an article on a product that was being called cashew cheese, and there is this discussion happening around the world over how to call non-dairy products their common name without creating confusion for people who think they might be buying dairy products. So th- this started without any real discussion. Uh, everyone's familiar with coconut milk and almond butter uh, and uh, and peanut butter and these sorts of things. And so it seems very logical that, um, that products that go through a similar process or results in a similar application and flavor and texture might be called sort of a modified version of their dairy equivalent. And so we've seen, I I mean, if you drink coffee, then you're probably familiar with oat milk and familiar with soy and almond milk and these sorts of things. That's, uh, in a lot of ways, and from a knowledgeable consumer's perspective, should be fine. From a regulator's perspective, it causes a little bit of heartburn and it causes some heartburn for a few reasons. One, around the world, for whatever reason, in Canada especially, but not exceptionally, we tend to protect our dairy producers. And that is reflected in our trade laws, in our trade agreements with other countries. If you've ever tried to bring butter into Canada as a person or a traveler, you'll know that if you declare it, it'll just be seized from you and taken. So we don't allow people to bring in butter full stop. It's not allowed. And if you bring cheese into the country that's not from here. Uh, the first $20 is duty-free, but after that, you're paying something like a 260% tariff on any cheese that you bring in. And Canada has a supply management system, which is really what that's targeting. It's a, an economic protection. But it's reflected in all of our trade agreements. And similarly, in naming non-dairy products traditional dairy names, that causes some concern over clarity for the consumer. Now, this like, really... The quote that was used in the Global Mail article wasn't maybe my favorite quote ever, but the way I was presenting this issue to Alexandra was was that the assumption from a labeling perspective is that you're gonna call something by its common name. And and common name really is like a very reductive way of saying, like, well, what is the thing? And that usually works without any trouble. In this instance, the what is the thing name for Blue Heron was, well, this is cashew cheese. It's the same as cashew milk, but it, we, we make it into a curd and then we maybe ferment it for a bit. And then it turns into something that would be comparable to a cheese. And it's used in a similar way on vegan products or vegetarian products. And so that should be fine. The CFIA's perspective on this was if someone, let's say a child or someone who really had no idea that there was this universe of non-dairy products that was being created, went into a supermarket to buy cheese, they may well go and buy cashew cheese when in fact they intended to buy cheese cheese, which is always from sort of the mammary gland of a, of a ruminant. And so that's not acceptable to us, right? Like what is cheese is the fundamental legal question, and I mean that in the most serious sense. And the answer is, is that. Like it needs to come from an animal. That is what cheese is. And so if you put a modifier in front of that that doesn't say, this is not dairy cheese, then you're running afoul of, of this sort of this general undertaking not to mislead the consumer or create an erroneous impression in their mind. And so that's where these, these two sort of worlds collide, right? Because you have this very, like Blue Heron's argument is, is the common name of this thing is really straightforward. And I don't know anyone who's going to walk into a supermarket And they're going to spend X amount of dollars to get our product, which is going to be priced at a premium because it's expensive to make and is going to be packaged in a very different way. And it's probably going to highlight the fact that it doesn't involve some significant issues for in terms of uh, of uh, use of animals and animal production for food, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so if that child walks into a supermarket, they're probably still going to pick up the Kraft singles or the just regular cheese, the blocks of mozzarella and that sort of thing you'll remember from your childhood. Mm-hmm. The likelihood of them being like just confounded over these two different names is unlikely. And the CFIA's perspective is the opposite,
0: which is... You're calling it cheese. It better well be cheese. It better be cheese, and it better be cheese in our definition. And it's it's simply a matter that that is the definition within the I guess, uh, statute within the regulation that says cheese is based on the lact what is it lactile secretion of the mammary gland of 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 cows, right? Yeah, effectively, yeah.
3: Yeah. Of cows are of ruminants, yeah.
0: Right, okay. And it's interesting, I was speaking with Anna Pippas, who's done a bunch of things, been a food lawyer, a food writer, advocate, and her take on it was, and I guess perhaps this would be aligned with Blue Herons, that... To the contrary, calling it cheese or calling it milk or calling it butter is actually helpful because that's what people understand. And nobody's going to think peanut butter is coming from a ruminant. And nobody's going to think that a cashew spread that you might call cashew cream because you want somebody to use it in the same way that traditionally you would use sour cream. They're not going to be confused. And to further that, to your point about labeling and charging a premium price, the whole competitive advantage of these products, it seems to me and certainly to... Uh, a couple of people I've spoken to is that they don't contain animal products right so they're going to be very clear about the fact that these are different
3: yeah no question and i mean anna i mean fundamentally is correct like i think that's really where where the argument to protect the definition of cheese or butter or milk kind of falls flat in his face which is we've already we've we've crossed this bridge right in in accepting the notion of coconut milk which everyone understands I, and so so just by having a different nut modifier on the front of it, like it should be fine, and it should be evident to anyone who is purchasing this sort of thing that that it's not, in fact, dairy milk cheese. And the CFI's perspective is just absent any modifiers. If I say cheese, that excludes cashew nut cheese, right? Which I think is also correct. Like if you asked for cheese on your burger and it was cashew mm-hmm. nut cheese, that's not what you ordered. Like I think if you were to throw that onto a public survey, 90% of the public would say that's <laughs> that's not, that's not, that's not what that I was expecting, right? Right. So that's sort of like, that's that's the, the tricky piece of this. I mean, the other small, like component of this discussion is that Canada right now is going through a major overhaul of a lot of its food laws. And this sort of happens like once a generation in a lot of ways. And acts are, I mean, as you know, uh, and as practicing lawyers will know, uh, they're always updated in budget documents or through omnibus changes in ever so slight ways. But we've actually gone through a major overhaul of our food laws. And the laws that define what cheese is, what a lot of dairy products are were really set out in regulation in the 80s, and they really haven't been reviewed since then. And so if you look at what the CFI has to do, they have to sort of have a foot in the mind of the 1980s, hyper-uneducated Canadian consumer, that doesn't know of sort of like, like the treatment of animals or their condition or vegan concerns or even organics concerns or the sustainability of food production. That's not part of the discussion of the landscape as it relates to food production at that period of time. They also have to have one foot in this modern day that says, look, like we're a bunch of millennials and we've decided that uh, that certain practices aren't acceptable and there's a, a significant majority of us that chooses not to eat meat and a significant chunk of us that says, or not majority, but significant number, and then a significant chunk of those people that are completely vegan and are significantly concerned by or upset by or at least aware of animal cruelty and ethical treatment of animals, and that sort of thing. And so for the CFIA, I mean, maybe it's not an enviable job, right? And these are really prescriptive regulations, right? So they're not something where it's like, like an inspector doesn't really get the opportunity to go into Blue Heron and say, does it does it look like cheese? Does it smell like cheese? Is it reasonable to think of this as a cheese product if you have this modifier on it? It's not something they're allowed to do.
0: They're, that they're happens. assessing whether, whether it meets the threshold definition within the legislation.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and so, I mean, to the CFIA's credit, to a... Uh, to the CFI's credit, I'm not going to qualify that. Through a negotiation with Blue Heron and I think some other actors on the West Coast who are making vegan cheeses, they came to some agreement over 100% non dairy vegan cheese or something to that effect, which is like hilariously over the top in the number of qualifiers you have to put on top of it. But at the same time, like it does show some remarkable flexibility given the rules the CFI has to work with.
0: Can you give us some examples of, of the sectors your clients operate in and the types of challenges they're coming to you to help with? Yeah, for sure. That's
3: a, it's a wonderfully framed question. And it's, this is, uh, defining my job is really challenging. And sort of the the thing that makes it fun is that there there is a real breadth of problems that come up, both in scope and in uh, specific subject matter. The damning part of my job is that it also requires me to keep up on a variety of areas of law so that I, as a practitioner, I firmly believe that dabbling in areas of law that you're not familiar with is a assured way to get sued uh, <laughs> as a lawyer. And, and that I mean, really to, to offer competent and comprehensive advice, you need to, to be aware of like, everything that's happening in, in those areas of law. So in the most basic sense, a lot of what I do is corporate commercial. Uh, And so that's managing contract, that's setting up uh, governance relationships, uh, that's uh, helping international companies do business in Canada uh, and and domesticating products or getting familiar with our distribution ecosystem or expectations of like what we see from our national grocers or independent grocers and how to break into the market. Food businesses In that context, there's some real value in specializing in the food context because they often share a series of norms culturally and then the products usually share a variety of things as well. So the products obviously are either highly perishable or have a fairly short shelf life. They're heavily regulated. And so a major issue that we try and address is building uh, that regulation and compliance in a fairly detailed way into contract. A well-run food distribution business, for example, is it's like a bit of a minefield on a balance sheet basis because it, they really should have an empty warehouse at all times and should just be a series of liabilities, right? Like nothing hangs around, things come in and out the door. There are things that are hard to track. There are products that are seeing uh, more extensive third-party non-governmental regulation that's being built into more contract as well. So, so having a third party auditing firm determining if your supply chain is secure so that if you're bringing in olive oil or you're buying olive oil for an importer, that it's actually olive oil or that fruits and vegetables are from the correct country of origin or those sorts of things to boost public trust or trust in, in, in your purchasers. But it also, I mean, it goes up and down the chain. So I don't do a whole lot in the agricultural context, Um, I'm centered in downtown Toronto. uh, And so I do work with some farmers and some farming organizations who are really exceptional. But my primary work is somewhere between the production of food, right? So uh, once it's off the fields and then it sort of enters into this contractual management space or further processing, processing into distribution into retail. Uh, And then I do a bit of hospitality. And so that's primarily where I'm focused. And the nice thing about focusing in on the sector is that it really allows you to triage the potential issues that may emerge deep in your solicitor's paranoia to ones that are likely in this context, ones that are truly unlikely in this context, and ones that we should talk about and really think about. And, uh, and just simply through, through seeing the missteps or, or the types of issues that arise for, uh, for food producers, people that are building a new product, uh, people that are running a distribution company, those sorts of things. When you're tackling problems like investment or bringing on a new shareholder, or even just setting out sort of the the initial meeting and what roles people will have as directors, like that's a that's a big piece. Sort of understanding how those those wheels in the food sector have classically turned, and then if there's a smarter or more practical way of dealing with a lot of those problems. And so that's and that's a big chunk of the work that I do. The other chunk that I do is is all regulatory focused. So it really hones into the discussion that we had earlier about uh, about cheese. In the most basic sense, uh, reviewing a label is something that I do a lot of, and trying to ensure that that when you bring a product to market, that you're not exposing yourself in a couple different ways. You're not exposing yourself to your regulatory authorities, right? The CFIA is in a lot of ways a wonderful organization because it tells you what it expects to see on a label or not, as opposed to, say, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States that doesn't often comment and allows the market to figure it out, or at least that's how it feels a lot of the time, but also so that you're not creating an erroneous impression in the mind of the consumer, which is a regulatory and legal problem with the government, but also with uh, class actions and, and private remedies is a concern, and then ensuring that you're compliant with those contracts from the retailers, the distributors, or whomever else that you're engaging with, just to, to ensure that you're complying with undertakings relating to potential actions, uh, litigation risk, that sort of thing. But in that regulatory realm, there are all kinds of really wild and fun processes that come up from time to time. They generally require a similar skill set, but they're pretty wild. So so novel foods are things that come up from time to time, determining if something is actually a novel food or not, is wild.
0: Yeah. Can you give us an example of
3: of one? Yeah, absolutely. So, And as a solicitor, I'm generally not allowed to talk about in detail about a lot of my files. It's really frustrating because if you're a a litigator, everything eventually becomes public record, and then you can speak to it, at least to some degree. For me, a lot of what happens is in a black box. But I do have a client's permission to talk about a file I did a few years ago these fellows are part of an organization that makes or farms crickets.
0: Okay. I, I wondered if crickets would, would turn up in this because I've started, I've, I've read about them for a while and I've started to see them even in my small town in Gibson's on the Sunshine Coast. I've, I've seen some cricket products.
3: Oh, extraordinary. Extraordinary. It's it's remarkable from the environmentalist in me says this is an extraordinary opportunity and I think the industry could use a little bit of support, but really they could use people who know how to cook to figure out <laughs> how, to, how, to, how to make these in a context other than sort of what traditional cultures have used them in, right? So it's easy to go down to Mexico City and see how they're used in Oaxacan cuisine and in Mexico City's cuisine and that sort of thing. But domestically, there isn't a lot of history of Canadians eating crickets in particular, Now, my question was a little bit different, which is far removed from this, which is simply, let's see here, let's lay this out. There was a cricket that was being farmed around the world and it uh, grew really quickly and was pretty safe and was a really effective way to make pet food and to make food for humans in that growing market, particularly in the 1990s and early 2000s. But it developed a virus and the virus essentially made it impossible to farm these types of crickets. The bio controls that you would need in place just made it unfeasible. And so we needed to find another species of cricket that we could farm. And everyone was more or less comfortable with the previous cricket. It was just really well established. And so no one had really asked the question, is this a novel food or not? But this new, uh, new variety, it was a fair question. It was a fair question in Canada in two different ways. One is are crickets a novel food generally? Because I don't think it had been asked before. And then secondly, if crickets are not a novel food, is this particular variety a novel food? Now, the goalposts that are set up in policy for the determination of novelty are pretty extensive. They're meant to catch basically GMO foods or novel processing techniques, so high-pressure processing pasteurization, uh, or yeah, g- generally GMO foods. It's, they're all published on the health Canada website, but the goalpost they use to figure out if something's novel or not is a food that needs to have been consumed or be a regular part of a people's diet for three generations. And that, that sample size of people, I believe needs to be about a million strong. So for something to be not novel, that's what you need to demonstrate. And there's some wiggle room, but like when you start thinking like three generations, it needs to have traditionally been around in like a fairly abundant way, right? Like three generations, like in a lot of ways, is 100 years or 80 years. And so if you go back 80 years from now, we're thinking like, like this is like sort of World War II. It needs to have been part of a million people's diets on a regular basis, moving forward from World War II on. And so I can't say that for a lot of you know sort of Western diets, they've changed immensely, immensely over these. These years. But for crickets, it was an impossible task. And so we actually were, as opposed to being a very scientific process, we ended up having to scour ethnobotany journals and journals of anthropology that had gone through areas that this cricket existed in the hopes there would be a passage that would document that uh, a certain tribe or a certain group of people were eating this, they were seen to eat this. And so we couldn't present like a very like black letter, like here are the million people, like we've counted them up. And for the last three years, like we've got affidavits saying like, oh yeah, like absolutely. Like we would sell enough of this per year or import enough of it per year to, to make it hit that number. But instead it was, it was, it was much more vague. The, the food and agriculture organization, the subset of the UN put out an amazing report in 2010, I think that related to the problem of insects in, uh, in Western diets or first-world diets, and they said in the first world, no one really eats insects, so there are no regulations on them and how to make sure they're safe and to see how they're used and, and eaten. Uh, in the developing world, everybody eats insects, but it's the developing world, so no one has regulations on how to make sure they're safe uh, or how to classify them or how to understand them. And so Europe did a huge report on this whole topic in uh, 2015, 2014, 2015, where they essentially landed on uh, like a wait and see approach. The European Food Safety Authority said, you know what? I don't know. Like, we're concerned here. We're not really sure how bioavailable a lot of this stuff is or how digestible it is or if there's a concern with the retention of heavy metals. We're not really sure how to deal with the classification of farmed insects versus wild insects and there are so many species to deal with. we have concerns about several of them and less about others, but we're not really sure where we land on this. Canada in a very progressive way, we sort of look to Korea and to uh, to Australia and to Mexico and a few other countries that have really either invested in or built up their infrastructure relating to insect production and uh, and ultimately we said uh, or we were given a green light. To, to produce and package and sell these in Canada for food, which is a huge deal because this company uh, essentially is, I mean, for every startup that wanted to use cricket flour from uh, probably 10, 2010 or 2008 onwards, was probably relying on this company's flour. They're a major producer. And so if they had uh, been presented with a stop sale as opposed to a letter of no objection, then uh, it would have essentially uh, f- seized up an in industry so so yeah so it was a pretty wild process because it's just so so different than than most. But if you think about novel foods, that's a piece. But we also have these little bureaus that no one really knows about in Health Canada that have a major impact on the foods that we eat. So there's uh, the Bureau of Chemical Safety, which we interface with all the time to ask questions about food additives and their uses. There's an entire process devoted to amending the lists that contain how you may use a food additive in, in what context and what products and in what amounts. And so there are remarkably skilled toxicologists and microbiologists and food scientists that work within the food directorate, primarily in Ottawa, Ottawa and the major urban centers in Guelph that all exist and sort of the consumer, it's it's never sort of present of mind. And so those are the the bodies that I sort of create a link between from people who are trying to create a new product or use an additive in a different way or just formulate something that hadn't been seen on the market before and getting a green light so that when they bring it to the market they know that they can actually they can actually sell it
0: and i wonder if you could tell us a bit about the um an association i know that you're associated with the canadian association for food law and policy how does it interact both with your practice and with government
3: Yeah. So great question. The latter part of your question is easy to deal with. How does it interact with government? And the answer right now is it doesn't really. It's really designed to be a way for people with a background in law, so lawyers or academics, uh, law school professors, and maybe people that work with NGOs or policy groups uh, to come together and discuss issues in law and to find people with expertise in various areas, and to create professional development materials to make better food lawyers that hopefully can inform better food policy. When I started my practice, which was six and a half years ago, I decided, well, so I shopped my this concept with my old law firm that didn't quite understand what I was after. Uh, and so I said, okay, and then applied to a bunch of jobs I didn't really want, uh, and then worked for a startup. And then decided to open this shop. Uh, As soon as I opened it, I spent a lot of time at the major legal library we have in Toronto, the Great Library at Osgood Hall, uh, just trying to create my own personal library of food-related continuing professional development material. So materials that lawyers use and are required to to take every year to make sure they're up to date on their practice. And so every, I don't know, five or ten years or so, the commercial leasing bar Will do. Uh, hey, here are twenty things you should look out uh, for that are specific to a restaurant lease. And so I would find that for uh, two thousand and ten, and two thousand and six, and two thousand and one, and I would save all of those and put them in my library, and then read them. And then I'd be like, "Oh, okay, this is so interesting. Like these are the things that I need to be aware of when I'm thinking about a restaurant lease. Very specific, very specific terms over heat and odor and waste disposal." and parking and drive-through permitting and uh, municipal bylaws in Toronto or in Hamilton and how those impact a restaurant. And then like what it looks like for a restaurant to be sold. And then what are the key drivers of the value of a restaurant on sale? So in those first, really those first year of practice, I was spending most of my evenings at the law library trying to pull up and read through anything that I thought was related to this sector-based approach to my practice. And so the idea with this, uh, the Canadian Association for Food Law and Policy, is that it doesn't have to be that complicated. And there are, in fact, a number of lawyers across Canada that have highly specialized practices. They may not have identified as such in the past, but we want to create a space for them to say, look, like I practice primarily in the food sector and I do, I don't know, food contact material work or packaging work. And that's what I do. And it's generally consumer packaged goods. It's not always in food, but half of what I do is food. And so I'd like to be a part of this group so that when I think about my problems, my practice, I also can think in a more comprehensive way about other issues that may be coming up for my client that would make me a better lawyer and allow me to give more specialized advice
0: are you finding the academic piece is playing into the same sort of development in this sector? And, and what I'd like you to comment on specifically is, is Michigan state, because I know you're doing some teaching in addition to your practice work. And it strikes me that if you're teaching master's level students, there's gotta be a growing interest in this whole sector.
3: Yeah. Well, so, okay. So that's a really great question. The Michigan state program, their college of law has a program called the global food law masters in and it's, it's a pretty remarkable program. It's been around for quite some time, uh, I think around 20 years. And the folks that join up there are really keen to learn about specifically food regulation in the United States is the focus, but also there are courses on food regulation and law in Canada and in China and Asia generally, in Europe, in dealing with Codex, uh, which is sort of the global standards for foods, uh, and then very specific courses on Uh, alcohol production, additives, those sorts of things. And it's pretty remarkable. What's interesting is that that program often is very technical in nature and is a master's in the same way that an executive MBA is an MBA. So the idea is uh, in that context, typically the folks who take those courses and who enroll in the programs are really working day-to-day in the food business in some capacity, be it for for major companies or for an importing company that's smaller, or who knows. The academic work that's being done in Canada is really quite different and sort of fits into this other separate wave of academic engagement with food that stems from the mid-2000s. And so when I see Canadian academics, often they're engaging with traditional legal issues that are being assessed from an academic lens and they throw a, a food lens on top of that, and the food lens off, often changes what the underlying analysis looks like. And so the person who I co-organized our, the first conference with, Jamie Baxter, who's a professor at Dalhousie, his original destination would have been as a land economist. He was an economist before he went to law school. He went to U of T for law, articled, and then did a master's in law, and now is a property law professor. And one of the first articles he ever wrote as a as a professor of law was on uh, whether estate law reform as it relates to land could be something that could be used to protect the family farm on the basis that the family farm is one of the greatest protectors of the environment and of sustainable practices that we have. And so whereas my course, we're really, we're running through what are food additives, how do we get lists amended? How do we think about civil actions in the context of food? How do we think about novel foods? How do we think about labeling? Here's case law that relates to these issues, and and it's a, really it's it's a very much like a heavy law course, and sort of straddles that universe between law school and lawyer school. It sort of it it skews more towards lawyer school. A lot of the work that we're doing in Canada is really incredible because. It takes the concept of food system analysis and then blends it with traditional legal analysis and leads to some really cool places. I mean, we we're thinking more and more about a climate and food production. And so there are a group of environmental lawyers who do food law research in the academic context, thinking through the incentives that we give to agricultural production and how that fits with the taxation of carbon and those sorts of issues, how we're thinking about aquaculture how indigenous law or Aboriginal title fits with food systems, the right to food, the right to hunt, wild foods, these sorts of things that are really like bonkers amazing to learn about and to see the research that's being done on them. And so it's it's less, for me, the way that I perceive it, it's it's less practical in terms of what's happening in Canada in terms of uh, of the content, but it's really amazing for generating law students interest and in understanding of how to reshape concepts into different areas of practice or areas of law and then also I think it's really helpful for law students to experience food law because it also forces them to sort of leave the silos in which most law students are taught law right because we're taught it in as a the law of contract or the law of tort or criminal law and the reality is is in private practice as you'd know, you have someone that comes into your office and says, here's this disaster that happens.
0: Right? They don't come in with a discrete tort law pro- problem.
3: Yeah, exactly, right? Like at no point in the instructions does someone say after they've given you their spiel, like, oh, please just engage with the property law issues in this hypothetical, right? And they're like, this is a mess. And like the CRA is involved and the provincial health authority is involved and there's a landlord that's pissed. And I don't know, man, Like it's going to be a wild ride. And so food law, like in its core, like the benefit in learning it at law schools, I think, is it really, it forces that issue because you can't perform any food law analysis without heading over those dikes, right? Like without sort of thinking about what are the obligations to contract? What's the obligation to the, uh, to the public and to public health and then to the regulator and then to I don't even know. I mean, think about consumer protection law, which is a huge part of food law class actions versus like how do we deal with waste, which is also a component of all of this. So it's a really dynamic way to learn about the law in a more real world sort of sense than how it's traditionally been taught. But the work that I do at a master's level, we're really trying to prepare professional students that already work in this area to be excellent at identifying issues that arise in Canadian food law in particular.
0: One additional question, we're getting toward the end of my questions, but I'm really curious for your thoughts on this one, Glenford, whether you can identify for us a similarity, because I see them all the time. I'll give an example of one between the legal world and the culinary world. And the the one, the most obvious one that, that I've seen Because I've worked in both sectors is how getting prepared for dinner service is very much like getting prepared for a trial or a hearing because I've always done the, the litigation side of legal practice. And so and both of these careers, for whatever reason, being a chef and being a lawyer are seen to be in the media, they're seen to be sexy somehow and there are TV shows about both. But at the end of the day, they're both just about a lot of long hours of hard work. And so before you get to a trial or before you get to dinner service, you've done hours and hours and hours of meticulous prep that's not very exciting, pouring through documents or chopping vegetables. So I'm curious if if you see similarities between the two worlds, culinary and, and legal.
3: No question. And I can answer that in a very positive way and in a very dark way. Uh, <laughs> but I make that connection all the time. So for me... Before I had a social insurance number, I worked at a restaurant in back of house cleaning dishes and making bacon bits and filling sauce, sorry, sauce jars and salsa uh, in a little plastic uh, containers. I was uh, 13, I think, which is, you know, like in a technical sense, child labor. But I was, I was volunteering and willing and excited about it. And from there, uh, I worked um, front of house as a server and a bartender and a wine steward until I was done undergrad. And so that was a huge part of my life. Uh, my summers, that's typically what I would have been doing through until the end of undergrad as well. And you know what? Like the, the jobs share so much, particularly back of house, but the jobs share so much. It's a, a work environment where if you're just a joker and not really willing to put in the hours, you will not last. And if you're not tough mentally and frankly physically, you will not last and you're never going to be paid as well as you should. I mean, and I know that I'm sure a bunch of non-lawyers are rolling their eyes, but if you ever meet a criminal lawyer outside of maybe five criminal lawyers in Canada, these aren't folks that that are killing it at the bank. These are folks that are, are really working hard for uh, an important democratic and judicial function. They're not getting rich by any means. And the hours that no one sees to your point, they're immense. Uh, not being in the criminal law section, it's always a little bit scary when you send on a bill for a project you've been working on because no one really does understand how an opinion is developed over you know, how an ingredient may be used or labeled or how to deal with something that is truly in a gray area or a novel legal issue. And it takes a lot of time to figure that stuff out. It takes a lot of time to to review documents and it's meticulous work, right? There's I'll tell you, the nice thing about hospitality is that, that no one can sue you for what you think. <laughs> uh, whereas as a lawyer, I mean, once you're called to the bar, you have a legal opinion, right? And so you're in any time that you're operating as a lawyer, you're dispensing legal advice. You notionally can be sued for those thoughts, or that opinion, or that
0: position. Yeah, that's a that's a great turn of phrase,
3: yeah. Yeah, well, I I don't think it's a great way to get a lot of sleep, but it's, it's certainly a, an interesting turn of phrase. And it's it's something that, that really does separate them. But in every other way, it shares so much. I mean, when you're a junior, you're truly, you are someone who's working back of house, right? Like you're putting in the hours, no one sees them, no one appreciates you front of house comes in and barks in a bunch of orders they're all on top of each other and they're wondering why their bell times aren't being met that's your partner that's bringing in and managing a client right and they're out front dealing with the client with all smiles and telling them how great everything is going to be and how everything's rolling along super smoothly they don't realize that you're completely out of that scallops dish and like it's going to take an extra 20 minutes because someone had to go to the store to get some milk
0: right (laughs) right but that's the back of house problem.
3: <laughs> and that's the back of house problem. And so, so it relates in like a, a very meaningful way to me because I have lived both of those lives. And then even in terms of the cost on on mental health and just on on having a very balanced life, one of the hardest things you see in hospitality is the lifestyle of lifers who are back, in, back of the house, right? Like finding a job that you can actually grow up in and that gives you space to hang out with your kids and to have a spouse that you see Those are not frequent and you see a lot of really talented chefs take jobs at places like golf courses because all of a sudden it's like, well, look, this is not a cool job, but I got benefits here and I know that I can show up at eight and leave at four and pick up my kids or whatever the situation might be. In law, it's very similar. One of the hardest things that you see is when a couple who are both lawyers both get into trials or deals at the same time and it's just like, no one lives at home. It doesn't exist. Uh, And so I'm not sure how you make that work in a family context. I'm not sure how sustainable it is either. And so it's something that's really hard to control. And it exposes you to a lot of of emotional hardship, I think, because of that. And then as a knock-on effect, both industries experience a markedly higher degree of substance abuse and mental health issues as well. And so that's never great. And I think the legal profession's doing a really decent job of creating a space to talk about it. I mean, for a long time, taking a sick day was a sign of weakness. And I think that's changing. And you're seeing a lot of uh, schedules that accommodate working from home and that sort of thing, which is beautiful. But in the hospitality universe, it's still something that's a work in progress. And so we're seeing certainly in Ontario, more conversations uh, that are very open at industry nights or with support groups saying like, hey, let's talk. Maddie Matheson is an amazing character right now because he's I think at this point he's seen it all and he's very much in an an open place where he wants to talk about mental health. Uh, And I think that's very positive for chefs that are following in his footsteps because they're becoming more comfortable in the moment saying like, look, I don't want to go out four nights a week and see how wild I can get as a way of blowing off steam because of the pressure I'm under. Maybe there are more helpful ways of dealing with that. And uh, we certainly in Montreal with Joe Beef, In the article they put out recently about kicking their booze habit and the positive effect that's had on their restaurant, that's something that would never have existed 20 years ago.
0: No, no, that's right. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. I'd certainly thought about the addictions issues in both careers, but you're right. It's been the movement, I think, started a little earlier and and perhaps there are more and more fully developed resources on the law side. And it's, it's really nice to see that that's starting and gathering speed on the culinary side.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's just truly really refreshing, and maybe that's an indication of like, to a degree of, of some privilege or agency that lawyers typically have. But still, they haven't been quick to to deal with this, and generally, they're exempt from from employment standards, right? As as lawyers or as partners, so so it's not like they can call their HR person or they can call the Ministry of Labor and have them come in and have a snoop around about how unsustainable these workplace tactics are. And instead, they're they're left to the market to set it, to sort it out. But certainly both places are, are changing and that's really heartening because they're both really, really hard jobs and they, they keep everybody up at night and it's not easy to go to bed after a hard day. And, but at the same time, it's such an immense privilege to be able to uh, do the work that I do. Uh, in the context that I do. Uh, and, uh, and while it certainly stresses me out like crazy from time to time, and there are really hard problems that don't have simple answers, and there are clients that are demanding, and there are clients that are eminently reasonable, but just need the help that, that they're, they're paying for and they're seeking. It's a great job.
0: Wonderful. Well, listen, I think that is the perfect place to end it. Glenford, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you uh, spending time with me at the end of of a long weekend after a lot of travel I know you've been doing. It was great to get to know you and to learn about your practice. So thanks for being on the show. Yeah,
3: Graham, this is so great. Keep in touch. Thanks, everyone, for listening and keep up the great work as well. I'm excited to learn about your podcast and I've subscribed and I'm listening.
0: And that brings us to an end of the interviews for Vegan 1.0. I hope you enjoyed those discussions as much as I did. It was really great to connect with a vegan chef and then to connect with a food industry lawyer to get both perspectives on this interesting and this unfolding cheese gate matter. And... It was interesting, in speaking to Karen, I was introduced to somebody else in this space, and my interview with Anna Pippus is going to be coming up next time on Chefdemoni. Anna brings a really interesting background, and I'm sure you're going to want to hear what she has to say. Her background includes time as an animal rights advocate, as a food writer, and as a food lawyer. Here's a little bit of what Anna had to say when I asked her about the Cheesegate issue.
1: This is another case of regulations being created before, you know, in a different context and not really being suited to the context we now find ourselves in to modern times. So the food and drug regulations defined milk as being the lacteal secretion from a mammary gland. And then it specifically says, you know, genus bovine or whatever, cow, and then it sets out a a specific exemption for goats, for goat's milk. And then all derivatives of milk, so cheese, yogurt, sour cream, all of these kinds of foods are also defined, you know, by reference to this definition of milk as the lacteal secretions from mammary glands. So this worked just fine in the 70s when nobody nobody in Canada was drinking almond milk. But of course, um, in the last few decades, things have dramatically changed. And the regulations no longer really suit the current climate.
0: My full talk with Anna is coming up next time on Chefdemoni, and that's going to be Vegan 2.0. As always, if you have a question or a comment for the show, I really would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook, and you can DM me on either of those pages, or just send me an email directly to graham at chefdemoni.com. All right, that's it for Vegan 1.0. I'm Graham McLennan. Join me next time for Vegan 2.0, right here on Chefdemoni.